Good evening. Welcome to the Data Help with Tyron Tysonow. I'm Tyron Tysonow, Director of the Bureau of Statistics and Plans. Up on the show tonight, we're going to have a discussion about voter turnout, uh, hopefully with Paps Martinez, who uh, called on the show about a week ago. But if not, we'll also have on Abel Trinidad from the Bureau of Statistics and Plans to see what her research reveals. And at the 7 o'clock, uh, CBS Radio News, uh, we'll have on Chelsea Willits, who is uh, a, uh, a coastal fellow assigned uh, to Guam. Uh, uh, for those of you who uh, have not caught my previous explanations of this, uh, the Bureau of Statistics Plans has under its auspices the uh, Guam Coastal Management Program, which is a 100% federally funded uh, program uh, by the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. And uh, it, uh, it uh, deals with uh, coastal issues and, and, and trains uh, that feeds into coastal, uh, coastal uh, configurations. And there are about 36 uh, coastal jurisdictions across the country. Uh, for purposes of this program, uh, they border the Great Lakes. They're considered to have a coast. And so Indiana has a coast. And uh, one of the programs offered by the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration is the, uh, 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 they fund a, uh, an academic researcher called a Coastal Fellow for two years uh, on, a, on a research project within one of these jurisdictions. Now, this is a competitive process. And so Guam was only one of nine coastal jurisdictions uh, that were um, uh, uh, eligible or were awarded a Coastal Fellow. And uh, uh, this is a process done last year, and we got on board, fortunate to get on board, Chelsea Willett, she was our Coastal Fellow, and her project that she's doing for the people of Guam is the, delevation, uh, uh, the creation of a territorial seashore protection plan. Uh, this will govern uh, the use of offshore resources here for the uh, protection of them and, uh, and governance of them uh, so they can be uh, enjoyed by future generations. And we'll have her... Uh, on the show, on the show um, uh, later in the program, right after the seven o'clock evening news, uh, the first day was uh, this first day was uh, a stakeholder engagement uh, regarding uh, uh, the territorial seizure protection plan, and so we'll discuss how that went and uh, give an updates on the plan. And also, um, just to mention, in future programs, we'll have on Crescenda Uggen, the deputy director of the um, uh, Department of Youth Affairs, uh, who will talk about uh, the this uh, year's summer youth employment program. Uh, the last year's summer youth employment program was, of course, uh, canceled because we were at the height of the pandemic. But uh, as a sign that things are getting back to normal, the uh, Department of Youth Affairs is working in conjunction with the Department of Education for the development of a summer youth employment program. And so she'll be on the program uh, next week to give us the latest as to uh, what that stands and what uh, parents and youth can look forward to uh, in the summer. And we will also have on, uh, also from the Bureau of Statistics and Plans, uh, Monica Guerrero, uh, uh, to uh, uh, give us the uh, down low on what's happening with this year's, uh, or not, uh, the most recent iteration of the annual statistic yearbook and the sort of stats that are, uh, can be found uh, in that as well. 
later on in the summer, we hope to have back on Gary Hiles to talk about uh, unemployment statistics. That was one of our favorite shows. Uh, and uh, to go into uh, those details. And also, um, we'll probably uh, uh, have on uh, someone to call, talk about the latest happening in coral reefs. There was a... Uh, uh, there's a number of measures uh, going on right now, including uh, a possible creation of insurance policy in order to finance uh, restoration efforts in the coral reefs, and should they be battered uh, by a natural disaster like a typhoon. And so we'll have someone in the show to discuss uh, those details uh, as well, as well as other, and other uh, things involving the Bureau of Statistics and Plans uh, and its, its many programs, and, and, uh, and uh, even the stuff that aren't uh, related to the uh, agencies. Uh, we're going to also uh, have the program scheduled here at some point to Joe Bohar from the Department of Land Management uh, to talk about the technological upgrades that are happening in his department in order to uh, uh, improve uh, uh, customer service. And uh, probably trying to have back on uh, Phyllis Nangarell from the uh, uh, DISIT, the Department of Integrated Services for the Disabled, uh, to, uh, to discuss um, uh, what, what's going on with her department. We didn't have that much an opportunity last time because uh, we had a number of calls that ate into the hour, but hope to get her uh, back in her. They have a number of things happening, including their own technological upgrade uh, for their management information system, and, uh, and, uh, uh, which is uh, also designed to, uh, um, to uh, um, uh, improve customer service. And I also have on, uh, I hope to have them on soon, uh, Selva Balta from the Guam Regional Transport Authority, uh, who is, uh, they're developing this sort of uh, uh, system that's going to be kind of like a, an Uber system in which uh, people can uh, call in or, do, uh, or uh, dial in through an app and get a driver on that basis. And so uh, they're making the, uh, the uh, GRTA is making major investments that's in, that, in that area. And also, uh, interesting enough, they're also um, in the process of acquiring electric buses. Now, that is uh, uh, the subject of electrical vehicles is uh, high on the agenda in terms of uh, uh, policy uh, because of um, uh, the, the push uh, by the Biden administration, particularly its, its climate change uh, uh, policy in terms of uh, uh, trying to reduce emissions. And part of their, their approach to do it is, uh, is to um, uh, uh, transition uh, all the, uh, uh, the uh, 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 government uh, fleets, vehicle fleets, into electric cars. So we're going to go out there and have a lot of interesting discussions. But uh, uh, first off, uh, we're, let's go back to a call we got from uh, Pass Martinez um, uh, about, uh, about uh, last week here. And, and we have, hope to have him on, as well as April Trinidad from the Bureau of Statistics and Plans. I think April is on another line. Uh, but let's see. And the guy in the booth is, I think, answering that phone. Uh, but let's see if he uh, if he can get Paps Martinez on the line. So, Paps, uh, let's see if um, Paps are you with us? Not quite yet, because the guy in the booth is on the phone. I don't think he's heard me ask to, for Paps to be placed online. Be that as it may. Um, the other thing, of perhaps while well, we're uh, waiting for to catch the booth's attention, um, attention here, uh, refer in this instance is the uh, uh, the uh, data hub. Uh, perhaps we refer to the latest data from regarding how we're doing the pandemic. Uh, the uh, the just Joint Information Center produced uh, a new report saying five out of five five hundred fifty yeah five hundred five sixteen tested positive for COVID nineteen, and uh, which is a good score. Um, there to date there have been a total of eight thousand two hundred fifteen officially reported cases of COVID nineteen with one hundred thirty nine deaths, uh, forty seven cases in active isolation, and eight thousand twenty nine not in active active isolation. The CAR score is zero point seven, which is really good. So. 
with that, if you can, uh, Pastor Martinez could join us. And Paps, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, hang on, Paps. Uh, we're going to j- join by also Abel Trinidad. April, are you there? I am here. Okay. Perhaps I have online April Trinidad, who is a planner of the Bureau of uh, Statistics and Plans, who uh, uh, I gave the, the happy burden of researching the subject you raised about a week ago. So for to bring everybody up to speed, why don't you restate uh, your in- inquiry and, and the sort of theory you posited regarding voter turnout on Guam as not being as large as, as some people may think. Yeah. You know, the biggest myth we've had in the last 51 years since our first elected governor in 1970s, how big our voter turnout is, and they always say it's the largest in the country. But that's not true. Because in the states, when they talk about voter turnout, it's the voter turnout of eligible voters, everybody qualified. When we talk about voter turnout, we're only talking about registered voters. So we're not counting, and Tyler, I think it could be as high as 20,000 people who are qualified to vote but not mm-hmm. even registered, mm-hmm. we are not counting them as not voters. In the states, at times it's been as high as 50%, it's gotten better. Uh, they count them, of course, as non voters. If you're eligible, qualified to vote, and, uh, you know, not registered, then you're not voter. Now, using the 2010 data, uh, what I did, and the and, from the census in 2010, I think I talked to somebody in the office there to give me an idea how much it increased. Because you can only do this during government elections. You can't compare it. You can't compare it to the states when it's presidential election because it's too high. Mm-hmm. And you got to look at the 34 states that elect their governor at the same time as we do, the four-year terms. And that's what I did. Uh, but what the data that they had, and I hope you have it now, is how many people born on Guam 18 and above. They had that in 2010. How many people born in the United States outside of Guam are uh, 18 and above? They had that data. Then another thing, I didn't look into this, but now I thought of it, how many people are born in the CNMI 18 and above? But the data they did not have is how many people are in the military. I'm not talking about National Guard. The military both on and off base. How many of that? Now, it would be really good if, if you also knew how many of those were born on Guam. There's probably not too many. Or how many are tomorrow? Because those people, you know, would be qualified to vote on Guam, probably do vote on Guam. So that's the data I need. It's the military. Okay, let, let's take this in step by step. Uh, April, are you still with us? Yeah. Right. Now, so uh, voter, regist- voter turnout on Guam, how is that based on It's based on registered voters? Right. No, I'm, I'm, uh, that way. Uh, yeah, uh, perhaps let's walk this through with April, who I who I gave the happy burden of exploring this. So step by step, April, it, it is true that voter turnout on Guam is calculated on the percentage of registered voters, is it not? That is correct. And the most recent number we have, uh, that we don't have the 2020 numbers, but the most recent number we have is from the 2018 elections, where it's, I believe, a turnout of 66.8%. That's correct. Okay. Now, the, let's go on to the second point here. Uh, perhaps uh, is, 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 is says that in the states, voter turnout is um, done based not on registered voters, but on eligible voters. And you've uh, uh, been checking online with a couple of jurisdictions. Uh, uh, so so we're, how is voter turnout calculated on in the states? Is it done by eligible voters or by registered voters? Well, what I found, um, for example, with California and also with Texas is that they actually calculate both. 
So they have, um, you know, they have a number for those who are eligible to to register, eligible to vote, and then they actually have numbers for regist- actual registered voters. So they actually have both numbers, mm-hmm. uh, turnout registered, and then turnout eligible. Do you happen to have a turnout for um, for any recent election, either California or Texas, for registered voters? So, um, well, with regards to the presidential election for um, Texas, I do have for both. Okay. Um, so this, is, this would be a 2020 number. This would be a 2020 yeah, so, number. Okay. So for, the, for Texas, um, the, for example, the turnout registered was at 67 percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, turnout eligible uh, was 52. It was fifty-two percent. So, and, yeah. and so, in, in fact, the um, um, and and let's assume we're comparing apples and, and oranges here. But uh, 20, uh, 2018 was for us a gubernatorial election, and that turnout was sixty-six point eight percent. And the twenty twenty election in Texas was a presidential election, and that turnout yeah. was sixty-six point seven seven percent. So they're yeah. rough, and, and again, we're sort of um, trying to compare turnouts and chief executives' uh, turnouts. So they're kind of close. Would you say, at least the registered yeah. turnout? Yeah. So, Paps, are you, are you with us so far? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so in, in essence, uh, there the turnout is is calculated both ways. Uh, in yeah. which case, here, if, it's, if we compare our um, uh, the the registered turnout, and, just, and again, we we haven't um, uh, Paps maybe give more time, but I have poor April take a look at all fifty states. But I think for <laughs> our purpose of our discussion, to get to the real point as to how we can use the census data to a more, uh, as you term, maybe a better picture of, of turnout here. I'm just going to go the examples here. So in any event, mm-hmm. we, we, we do know that, that voter turnout is calculated uh, depending from state to state, um, yeah. uh, by, but, uh, but uh, at least we found at least by registered, vo- registered voters. Are, are there some states where only counted by the ratio of eligible? And I understand, April, you've done, just done scratched the surface and done a sampling here because you have a lot of other work. And, and by the way, Paps, we're, we're, I've asked April to help out on this one because of one of the, April, why don't you describe what, what, your, what your job is at the Bureau? Well, um, I, I am a planner um, with the Bureau under the Planning Information Program, and uh, our section we actually uh, we have several we have several subrecipient grants. So we, we kind of work around things dealing with fisheries uh, grants with NOAA. We also have some grants from the DOI that we've subgranted um, to do some studies, uh, such as with our compact impact, uh, uh, you know, addressing some of the uh, government accountability office uh, concerns of our reporting. We also are working on um, our household income and expenditure survey uh, update to that so that we can update the consumer price index. But, um, but, uh, and then we, we also produce uh, several re- reports, which is the, uh, the statistical yearbook, which we just released our 2019. And we'll have Monica on the um, show sometime yeah. next week to talk about it. But, but actually, perhaps I asked April to be on. Uh, to, to go into this one here because although that project is completed, what uh, her her most sterling work has been uh, staffing the 2020 Census of Guam, <laughs> yes, and yes. even before the first uh, uh, person, Bernie Guinness, uh, employee for the local 2020 Census office, a good part of the burden. Uh, for uh, dealing with the uh, the preparatory work and, and even the actual work for the 2020 Census of Guam, like, like for example, acquisition of the offices, uh, fell on the shoulders of April and Monica Guerrero, uh, who also is a planner in a section. So, she's our go-to person for everything you want to know about the census, but was afraid to ask. 
And um, and so, given that here, um, before we move on as to what's in the census and and, uh, and what can be useful for this purpose, do you, do you have any questions for um, for April uh, so far, perhaps, or should we get to the census uh, figures? No, we should get to the census figures. Okay. Yeah. So let, let's let's see if I and perhaps interrupt me if I paint paint this a different picture. Perhaps this is is a working thesis, is that we can get a picture of eligible voters by taking the census data, and the 2020 census data is not out yet, but taking the census data, and from that, can we identify people who were born in Guam and born in the U.S. and the United States? A- so, April. Um, we, so, first of all, let me just backtrack. We did, like um, what you had mentioned, Tyrone, there was a lot of planning involved. In which, when I started with the Bureau in 2016, mm-hmm. there was a which lot of... Two, year, two years before me. From geography yeah. to... to, um, to uh, reviewing the topics. One of the things that we actually did ask um, in terms of the data products was to include information on uh, age as well as citizenship. So those are one of several data products that we've asked um, for the census to release to. But, but the citizenship question, question did not make the final census form that was done for 2020, correct? It was dropped. Which, the citizenship, yeah. yeah that was dropped, yeah. So, so with regards to the 2010, we actually have a, we, we do utilize the software uh, the CS Pro, um, which is actually a free database of software that you can download from the census website. And we used, um, we, for 2010, we, were, we received uh, PUMS data, which is basically the public use microdata sample, which is just a 10% sample of the full census population. So we used that software and that information to kind of do cross-tabulations. So in that respect, we, we, we can generate some tables um, you know, looking at factors like, uh, you know, we want to look at uh, people who are 18 or over and then citizenship, and then maybe we want to, to tell the system to so, remove uh, those who are uh, institutionalized. So, so although the so, citizenship question was removed from the 2020 census, what you're saying is the citizenship question was used in the 2010 census? Correct. Okay, so, so we can refine U.S. citizens... Uh, 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 a part of that population. Now, in order to find the voter population, uh, it, it, which is not ba- only partially based on citizenship, but more based on residency, who are Guam residents, is there anything right. in the 20 census, 2010 census data that we can break out who are Guam residents? As a, you know, 20, legal, legal residents. Yes, since, since we don't have the 2020 numbers yet. Yes, yeah, so we do, we do have information on um, such as you know, how long they've been living, like, for example, if they've been living at their residence for a year or mm-hmm. longer. So we do have questions like that. No, um, but but, but, uh, but, uh, but April, legal residency, you know how that is. You can sit, live in a house for several years and still be legal yes. resident. Of so is, is legal residency one of the questions in the 2010 census? No, we did not ask okay. residency. You're saying we can infer how long they've lived there by how long they've Correct. actually been in that house. So. Um, okay. Then the second, the other thing is, is that we can we def, uh, break out those who are active duty military from uh, from the 2010 census numbers? Yes. Yeah, so we do collect data on active duty military as well. Okay. So basically, we can do age. We can do uh, we can do U.S. citizenship, and we can do um, if you're active duty military or not. Perhaps were there any other data points here that that you, you're looking for in the census data besides those uh, those three? You said, you mentioned just a second ago, Tyler, that you can do U.S. citizenship? From the 2010, no. But, well, first of all, we couldn't ask that question for the 2020 census. But according to April, and in the 2010 census, they asked the citizenship question. 
Remember the right, Supreme Court? Probably how I got that data. Yeah, and, and we're talking about the 2010 census numbers because we don't have the 2020 numbers right, right now. So I'm saying when the 2020 census comes out, look at the 2020. You, you know, you got to use the 2020 for future elections. Well, but, 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 okay, we can do that too when it comes up, Pat. But understand, the 2020 census numbers will not have citizenship data. Because that. We have this question. Were you born on Guam? Well, April, we'll have that question if they're born yeah, on Guam in the United States. Yeah. We have place of birth. So we have that at least. Okay, that's, that's it. Okay. If you have place of birth, that's the main event. Then the only other thing is the military. You're going to have how many, I'm not talking about the National Guard, how many military are stationed on Guam? The, the, if they're an active duty military, that would be that would be in the questionnaire, right, for the 2020 census, yeah, right, April? Yeah, okay. We do, we okay, do you have, have that. Was there any chance the active duty military, you would ask if they're tomorrow, or you would ask if they're born on Guam? Well, we we, we, we do have ethnicity questions, ethnicity right, April? And, place of and we have okay, places, right, so you can you can you can't. The do, last thing is, yeah. would there be any question about if you're born in the CNMI or if you're well, place of birth they have. They, okay. yeah. So that's it. If you have all of that, Tyler and I can figure it out. Well, let, let's walk this through. Um, and, and I'm afraid we're getting later time in nine minutes. But I'm going to pose a do the Socratic dialogue with you, perhaps, and 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 ask a couple uh, devil's advocate questions here. Uh, it, it, we can identify from military personnel here, but there, that given that methodology, we could not identify military dependents. In other words, spouses of military personnel who aren't actually in the military. So there's that hole in that one. Uh, the the other thing is is that although we can do place of, a place of birth, it doesn't uh, cover nationalized citizens, uh, people who were born, say, in the Philippines or elsewhere, and then uh, and then moved to Guam, and they are U.S. citizens. And then on t- on t- we're so you all, you want to infer that be, because they were born in Guam and born in the United States, they could be part of the voter pool. But the fact of the matter is, is that they have to be resident of Guam. Now I, I appreciate. You're carving out a good part of people who who live in Guam and are U.S. citizens and are not residents by carving out the military personnel, but it doesn't carve out their families uh, or their spouses, uh, more to the point. It doesn't quite count out uh, uh, transients uh, through here, like a, a station here, uh, station here either for some corporate office or at a hotel s- a s- situation, and actually maintain the res- residency in, in probably someplace in the States. Uh, for when they for when they move here. So, given that, uh, perhaps do you think we still have some workable data to uh, calculate? Uh, I'm not worried think? about the military spouse because if, if if they're not from here, they probably don't vote here. No, but but but, but, but military guy. Yeah, but 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 by your methodology, but by your methodology, perhaps we would be counting them as an eligible voter. Okay, you, we, 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 if you uh, if somebody comes here and the and the spouses of the military, we take them off. But they're but chances are they have the same residency as their spouse, and the spouse still will be counted in the pool of eligible voters. Would it not? No, I would not count them. I would just be no, but, but, but how do you, how do you how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you do? Uh, April, we don't have any data on spouses of military military active duty military, do we? In the twenty twenty census. Um, I believe we do have, ah. well, we do have dependents, but I don't know if it necessarily carves out, like, spouses and stuff like that. I, okay, I would, would a spouse that. be a dependent? I'm no, sorry? Would a spouse be a dependent? Yeah, I, I think that would just be their, their children. So, like okay. I said, I, I would so, have to verify so, whether so, it, it differentiates but, but between but spouses and you, April, you follow my point here. Therefore, the spouses of active duty military would be in the mm-hmm. pool of eligible voters if we just carved it out on where they were born. And, uh, and their age. 
um, yeah. and um, and uh, uh, for those details. So p- perhaps you see my point. There okay, still I'm be not a- worried about that. That's a very small percentage. Wait, 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 wait. Pap- perhaps how, how do you know it's a very small p- portion here? I mean, it could be. Uh, I'm tired. I need to go in a few minutes. Okay. I'm not worried about that. Okay. I think if, if somebody, if the husband or wife in the military doesn't vote here, is not a resident here, then the wife probably isn't. It's a very small but you percentage. Wanna, but you, but you want to count. About, what I'm worried okay. about is what you mentioned, it's good you mentioned it, is the number of people that are naturalized. Because mm-hmm. they had that in the 2010. Do you know how many people are naturalized? Do we, do we count naturalized in the 2020 census, April? Yes, hold on. Let me see. Okay. A- April, yeah. being, a, being a very good planner, is not doing it off the top of my head like I am. You right. know, she's actually okay. going to read the hard facts and give us the facts here, which is... Oh, here you pa- go. So the options are, yes, born in this area, yes, born in the U.S. or another U.S. territory or uh, community, yes, born elsewhere of U.S. parents, yes, a U.S. citizen by naturalization. Ah, okay. there we go, Pat. That's it, that guy. When I got everything. Oh, my gosh. Once so it comes out, I'm going to have it. Absolutely, and in which case here we can, you can, uh, if if you do me a favor, Paps, one will have you back on the show, and we can sort of hash this hash this out. Right, and when so the you started comes this out. out. Now, now to the million dollar question here, uh, April. What's our latest? Right, I have to wait till the data comes out. Right, right, right. Now I'm getting getting to this point here, uh, 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 Paps. Hang on yeah. for a minute. So, April, what is the latest word we have from our friends of the U.S. Census Bureau as to when to Guam can expect the uh, release of the first housing as uh, uh, population data? When's the latest oh, word? Gosh. The latest email that we got was they have no, they did not indicate a timeline. Mm-hmm. So I really have no, I mean, typically we have, um, you know, release of data by fault, but I, we don't have an actual communication from them to indicate when we are going to receive and, data. And, and we've asked, haven't we, April? We have asked. <laughs> we've asked repeatedly, haven't we, April? Yes. Yes, we have. So, and 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 what's making this more frustrating for us, Paps, is that the the population by state has already been released. They have not released the population by territories yet. Yeah, so, yeah, because they know the states that are going to gain or lose. Well, they had because Congress. the apportionment process. That's but right. but let me just mention one thing. Yes. For, for uh, you in April, by using the data, the twenty ten was pretty good in talking to your staff there. I forget the names, and from somebody with the military, where I got a. Uh, Better than a ballpark estimate. The voter turnout of, L- of registered voters was, yeah, 66%. Because, like I said, you used the last governor's election in 2018. But our eligible voters was 45%. Now, that's not too bad, because of the 34 states, we had a higher voter turnout than 25 of those states. Seven of those states beat us, and two of them tied around 445 45, mm-hmm. 45.5%. So that wasn't too bad, but it was 45% from the data I had. This will be better data after you told me. It wasn't 60%. It was 45, 45%. Because I'm telling you, Tyler, there's probably 20,000 people out mm-hmm. there that are, are not registered. Right. You know what I mean? Right. No, yes. There's a large number not yeah. registered. But that's what it was, 45%, which we're not the highest, but you know, we beat 25 out of 34, and we tie with two, and only seven beat us. But when the data comes out, yeah, maybe I could call up again on your show, and then I'm going to have a real good thing. Yes. Next election is a governor's election. Yes. You can't use a presidential election. You what? can only compare those 34. So let, let's, let's good make... Good news from April. I think you got everything there. Let's, I, well, a couple of last points here. Let's make a deal, Paps. When the 2020 numbers come up and we have something usable, let's get back on the show, you, me, and April, and we'll go hash this out. Deal? Right, right. I'll okay. give you an idea the other, the other thing. what... Uh, 
The the other thing I I I, I, um, I uh, sort of want to mention is give my thanks to April for for getting into this stuff here. Uh, for to subject matter, I'm sure you agree with me, Paps. I mean, I, I I pride myself that this show gets into geeky uh, subject matter, and this doesn't get any geekier than that. You know, uh, to go this deep into the stats, but uh, so but thank you for raising the subject yeah, with thank me. Thank you, April, because it's very very good info. Okay, by oh, this is my other question here. You said you've talked to my staff about the census. This is years you, ago. I forget. Oh, the name. years ago. Okay, I was I was going to wonder if the person you talked to was April, but in any event, no, it was, it was years ago before she got to work. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay then. Pass the team. Yeah. Pass my names. Pass yeah. my friend. Thank you so much for calling and yeah, raising the subject. You for the data. Thank you, April. Hey. Good news. Fortis and Fide, Paps. All yeah. right. Okay. Thank you very much. This Pass Martinez yeah, calling welcome. in, yeah. and April. So I have you on for the last. Uh, a minute, of the, a minute of the half of the program. And one, uh, for the listening audience, oh, well, let's see if we get the dial tone done from Pat. Okay, thank you. And just for the last maybe minute and a half, we do not have a commitment from the U.S. Census Bureau uh, for the data sets that will come out from uh, beyond population and, and housing, right? Uh, but l- just just let's do a what the sort of data. Why don't you go down the list of the sort of data we have uh, we have asked for in the census? There we and we've covered some of tonight: uh, uh, citizenship, ethnicity, uh, where they're naturalized or uh, naturalized, mm-hmm. uh, where they're active duty military. Here we have stats on their on their um, uh, age. We have stats mm-hmm. on dependents in a, in a given household. Mm-hmm. Um, what what else do we we have? We have we get we have data that was asked for in the census form on 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 veterans. Did we, do we, did we not? Yes, we do have uh, questions on and, veterans. And how what years of conflict? Right? Do, do we have data on the homeless? So that information is actually typically um, it's combined with group quarters, mm-hmm. and so that will include the population sort. Uh, in- institutionalized or non-institutionalized well, so it's actually together with that right but what, what it, with it so what i mean that institutionalized with it would it would it there's no way of breaking it out i mean it, so it mixed it with people who are hospitalized or incarcerated we did request that but that's something that we are not sure whether they're able to to do that okay we have so we'll, before, we'll, in, in, we'll put a pin in that april as an, as an open question for us to pursue april thanks so much for taking your tuesday night for uh for helping uh, me and paps out cover this thorny question april trinidad from the bureau of sticks and plans as we head up to the cbs radio news at seven o'clock see you on the other side 570 a.m kgum hagati guam is news talk k57 is CBS News on the Hour, your home for original reporting. I'm Monica Ricks in New York. The Justice Department recovers a multi-million dollar ransom payment after a cyber attack on the nation's largest fuel pipeline. CBS's Jeff Pegues reports. This announcement was clearly meant to send a message to the cyber criminals, just like the one on Thursday, in which the Department of Justice announced that it was going to investigate these ransomware cases like terrorism cases, and that means following the money, or in this case, Bitcoin. A dangerous heat wave is scorching the Northeast, as CBS's Mola Lenghi tells us dry conditions are slamming the other side of the country. Severe drought conditions across the West have helped fuel two wildfires in Arizona, forcing hundreds to evacuate homes outside of Phoenix. More than 100,000 acres have burned. In neighboring Utah, the dry conditions prompted the governor to call for a weekend of prayer. We need some divine intervention. The heat and humidity also produced scattered severe thunderstorms from Alabama to Texas. 
Fisher-Price executives revealed dozens of infant deaths are linked to its rock-and-play sleeper. More from CBS's Anna Warner. In 2011, Sarah Thompson lost her 15-week-old son, Alexander. Does that pain ever go away? No. Um, no, it's been 10 years, and I still, I still cry. A year later, Fisher-Price was notified of an infant's death. Then in 2013, a doctor wrote the company the product was unsafe. But Fisher-Price did not recall the rock and play until 2019, and now admits at least 90 babies have died. The FDA has approved a new treatment to address Alzheimer's. Experts say the drug helps patients with mild cognitive impairment, but the FDA wants more testing to show its effectiveness. A right-wing militia group has been linked to the murder of two officers in California. An Air Force sergeant accused of killing a pair of law enforcement officers was reportedly part of a right-wing militia known as the Grizzly Scouts. The Santa Cruz Sentinel newspaper reports that court documents indicate law enforcement officials believe Steve Carrillo was part of an anti-government group that was preparing for more deadly attacks. The killings took place in May and June of last year. Carrillo has pleaded not guilty. The Grizzly Scouts identify with the nationwide militia movement that uses the name the Boogaloo Boys. Steve Futterman, CBS News. Los Angeles. A home in Wisconsin is covered in rainbow lights after homeowners association rules forced owners to take down pride flags. The homeowners aren't mad. The rules were made to keep people from flying political flags. But floodlights are not prohibited, so they're using those to show off their pride. This is CBS News. Politics, policy, and pop culture with CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. The Takeout, weekends on the CBS Radio Network. Ready to create your own income with your own home-based business where there's no such thing as getting laid off? If a billionaire entrepreneur spent five years and $20 million searching for the next big trend, wouldn't you want to know what he found? If you're serious about making money from home without having to leave home, then write this down. www.goherenext.com You decide your income. Get the facts now. Goherenext.com It may be the biggest cover-up ever. Was the coronavirus created in a Chinese lab? Watch Cortez and Pellegrino tonight on Newsmax as they tell the real story. More than 30 million Americans watch Newsmax on all major cable systems. Or download the free Newsmax app on your smartphone and start watching now. Millions of Americans are turning off the old cable news and going to Newsmax, a trusted source. Check out Newsmax today. CBS's Steve Kathan reports a billionaire is getting ready to blast off. Amazon's Jeff Bezos says he'll be aboard the first manned space flight from his rocket company, Blue Origin. He broke the news on Instagram. I want to go on this flight because it's a thing I've wanted to do all my life. It's an adventure. It's a big deal for me. His brother and an auction winner will ride to the suborbital flight is planned for July 20th. Steve Kathan, CBS News. Lucky Charms will release a new limited edition cereal called Loki Charms tomorrow. The cereal is a collaboration between General Mills and Marvel, celebrating the new Loki series premiering on June 9th on Disney+. Plus. But Loki Charms will not be available in grocery stores, only online. And there are only 3,500 boxes available. Fans going for pre-sale boxes will have to unlock some magical encryptions to get them. Monica Ricks, CBS News. 
If you have unfiled taxes or are in debt to the IRS, this is important news. The IRS just rolled out a new program to help struggling taxpayers more easily resolve their tax problems. It's called the Taxpayer Relief Initiative, and it opens up powerful new options for people looking to get back on the right track with the IRS. And no one knows this program like the professionals at Optima Tax Relief, America's most trusted tax resolution company. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debt for their clients and have the expertise and experience to help you. One easy call to Optima can start the process, helping to put an end to your worries of wage garnishment, asset seizure, and other aggressive IRS actions. Make today the beginning of your fresh start with the IRS. Call the experts at Optima Tax Relief now for your free confidential consultation. Call 800-343-6460. 800-343-6460. 800-343-6460. Tax Relief. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. Thinking out loud. Your talk, your station. News Talk K57. Food and dietary supplements products discussed on this program are intended to contribute to the daily diet and overall health and are not intended for the use in the prevention, treatment, mitigation, or cure of any disease or health-related condition. Individuals that have or suspect they have illness or wish to commence a diet or exercise program should consult an appropriately licensed health care practitioner for medical history evaluation, diagnosis, treatment, and health recommendations. Welcome to Let's Play Doctor, Dr. Joel Wallach, your host, a veterinarian and physician. And I'm here for kids and baby boomers and seniors who don't want to die at 75.5 like their parents and grandparents. I'm here for kids and baby boomers and seniors who don't want to be sick and miserable for the last 15 to 20 years of their life like their parents and grandparents. We do have lines open. Give us a call toll-free, 1-877-912-PLAY. Again, that's toll-free, one 877 Welcome back. This is the Data Hub with Tyron Titano. I'm Tyron Titano, Director of the Bureau of Statistics and Plans. Uh, no, this is not a vet uh, talk show, even though the lead-up to it uh, may have again indicated otherwise. It's still the Data Hub. Uh, coming up, we'll have a discussion with Chelsea Willits, the uh, uh, Coastal Fellow who's working on the Territorial Seashore Protection Plan. Uh, we are live on News Talk 57 and on 96.5 FM, and we are simulcast on GTA Channel 3 and Docomo Channel 2. And we live stream at, at newstalkk57.com and Facebook, and also streaming on pncguam.com and k57.com. Uh, a podcast of this program should be available sometime today or tomorrow uh, if anyone wants to catch up on uh, uh, the previous uh, uh, discussion here, or may want to get a recording of the show uh, for, for the enlightenment of other people as well. Uh, as I mentioned, in future programs, we're going to have on uh, Crescendo Ogden, the Deputy Director of the Department of Youth Affairs, who will uh, discuss about the upcoming Summer Youth Employment Program. And also, we'll have Monica Guerrero, 
uh, from the Bureau of Statistics and Plans. He's a planner for, and they'll talk about the latest iteration of the annual statistical yearbook. Uh, this is a, uh, a compilation of statistics that are produced every year by the Bureau of Statistics and Plans and has demographic data, uh, trade data, and a number of other interesting fun facts uh, as well. Uh, they also will have um, uh, a discussion, uh, uh, hopefully some, soon, uh, on, on board here with um, uh, Sobo with the Guam Regional Transport Authority to talk about what's new happening in terms of public transit and uh, paratransit, uh, which, is, uh, which uh, his agency uh, uh, manages. Uh, today was um, an interesting day in, in public affairs here. The uh, oops, excuse me, and I and it's partially my phone went off uh, for, for that as well. Uh, we just finished a um, interesting discussion in the first block with Pass Martinez and Abel Trinidad from the Bureau of Statistics and Plans uh, regarding uh, voter turnout and uh, the how you can we can use the upcoming uh, 2020 uh, census statistics to uh, arrive at that. Uh, 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 that number here, and we'll keep on top of that one. But joining us now is Chelsea Willits, a coastal fellow assigned to Guam. Chelsea, are you there? Hi, yes, I'm here. Hi. As I said, Chelsea is our, our coastal fellow. I explained uh, her position in the first block, but uh, for the uh, uh, for the uh, benefit of our listening audience, Chelsea, why don't you give us give us some uh, of your of your background here, uh, where you're from, uh, what your education is, and uh, how you came to be a coastal fellow assigned to Guam. Sure, okay, so I'm originally from North Carolina, I grew up in North Carolina, and I also went to undergrad um, at North Carolina State University, and I studied political science and history. Um, after school, I actually veered off and went and joined the Peace Corps and did environmental and health work, uh, serving in Africa for three years. And then after that, I went to graduate school in Wisconsin uh, for environmental conservation with a focus in coastal and marine management. And during that time, uh, while I was actually working in Mexico, I applied for um, the NOAA Coastal Management and Digital Coast Fellowship. And this is a very selective process, and um, there are nine positions available in total and 18 finalists. So I was one of nine finalists chosen, and then chosen specifically for Guam. So um, it was kind of fate, actually. I remember talking to um, Edwin Ray, my supervisor, first, and he was, he was actually the last interview of the day, and immediately when I talked to him, I knew that, that we had a connection, and I knew, like, I knew I was going to come to Guam, so here I am now. <laughs> yes, and, and as that would confirm to me here, you, you were literally the most enthusiastic person of the uh, 18 potential candidates for, for, for coming to Guam. So we're, we're, we're sort of glad to have you with us. Uh, Chelsea, I, I think I'm, I'm going to... Uh, let, let talk. Give the mic to you for for a while. Today you did a presentation on the territorial seashore protection plan for the first of the stake, stakeholder meetings, and mm-hmm. uh, what I would like you to do is, is basically uh, give the listening audience uh, the same presentation you gave this morning to describe the territorial seashore p- protection plan that you're uh, helping to write and and how you see this process moving forward. So, the mic is yours, uh, uh, Chelsea. You had you had one chance to practice it this morning, so you should have it down pat by now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sir. Okay, so for those of you listening who don't know what the Seashore Reserve is, basically the Seashore Reserve is um, like a marine protected area, and it was created under statute back in 1974, and it basically is the coastline of the entire island, excluding areas that are either under the jurisdiction of the Port Authority of Guam or the military. And this also includes all the islands within the Guam jurisdiction, so that includes islands such as Cocos Island. And under another uh, law, the Bureau of Statistics and Plans, specifically Guam Coastal Management Program, is authorized to uh, collaboratively write this plan. So as part of my fellowship, or as my fellowship, I was brought in to um, work with DCMP as well as the rest of 
um, Gov Guam to write a future reserves plan. And so over the last, let's say, almost year now, um, my team and I have been compiling research through interviews, through extensive background investigation, reading various management and conservation and, and um, development plans. We have compiled a comprehensive study of the future research. So basically this comprehensive study is everything that indirectly and directly affects the reserve. And it could be anything from stormwater outfalls to natural parks we have around the future environment um, to critical infrastructure sites and basically everything. And um, as part of this, we also compiled a legislative matrix. So this is um, this is a matrix of all the rules and regulations that are applicable to the future reserve. And both of these are working documents of them now. Um, and we find ourselves consistently adding to them because there's always more information that we're finding. And um, this, specifically the legislative matrix, has aided in creating the fisheries management plan legal matrix, which is what the Department of Agriculture is working on currently, the fisheries management plan. And this legislative matrix, as well as the comprehensive study, will serve important as important references when we're moving on to phase three of the future reserve plan, which will be um, grafting rules and regulations with future reserves. Um, <clears throat> so, other than the comprehensive study and the legislative matrix, um, we've also done quite a bit of outreach. Um, one of the things I'm most proud of is the segment that we've done with CBS Guam called "What Is the Future Reserve." And this featured two um, extensive interviews with uh, Dr. Michael Luhan Bavakwa, who is now the curator of the Guam Museum, and um, she's the officer of the Guam Preservation Trust, Mr. Joe Sinata. And um, from that interview, we gathered a lot of information just about what the future reserves might be this generation on Guam and kind of what it is today and what we hope to do moving forward with this. Um, with these segments is create a new piece about what the future means to people today. And, and, so, if I may, and if I may interrupt, Chelsea, if anyone wants to see uh, the, uh, the two-part video segment of, uh, of Chelsea's interviews with uh, Mike Bavaca and John, Joe Kanata, it is available on the Guam Coastal Management uh, uh, Program's uh, YouTube channel. And mm -hmm. you'll be able to, to catch that here. And also, there are plans to air this on on the uh, government channels on both Docomo and GTA. So uh, I just want to put that plug in in case people will actually want to uh, view the, um, uh, the, uh, the the program that you produced here. So c c go on, uh, Chelsea. Yeah, absolutely. And you can also search on YouTube what is the future reserve. It should pull it up. Um, so other than the YouTube features with CBS Guam, um, we also have published some articles in, with Guam, the Guam Pacific Daily News. Um, actually, one was just published today, and then one was previously published in May. So we've garnered some outreach, or we've garnered some public comments from those, and we hope to continue to gather more public opinions and ideas through a survey that was actually posted on this recent article. So if you happen to cross this article, please uh, take the survey for us. That would be great. We really appreciate your feedback. Um, and other than that, we've also um, published some articles with the Man, Land, Man, Land and Sea Publication, which is the Guam Coastal Management um, Outreach Component. Um, and we had an article published back in May about the future reserve, and then we will also have one in July, I believe. And then lastly, um, I've been with uh, Tyrone a few times now talking about the future reserve and kind of our project here on the Data Hub show. So. Thanks again, Tyrone, for having me. Um, 
Just, yeah, to talk about the project again, I'm really, really excited to discuss it. So, awesome so given that uh, scintillating presentation, uh, how did this morning's um, uh, stakeholder meetings go? Oh, fantastic. We had a lot of um, participation. A few of the directors of the different government agencies, um, such as the director of the Department of Public Works and the Department of... Oh, Vin uh, Vince, came for, Vince, Vince came for that one. Vince came for that one because he had to go to an earlier one. Uh, mm -hmm. as well so he he did a two for that well the, vince is a busy man i mean if uh mm -hmm. if um you know he has a lot of roads to fix and he likes to be out there to, to get that stuff done but okay it's great to hear i know i know i know i know oh, oh vince twice for showing up for, for both meetings um yeah and any event maybe give uh not not um not to necessarily give a blow by blow but uh perhaps you give the listening audience of the sort of issues uh, that were raised in the stakeholder meeting, so they give some sense of the flavor of the uh, of the uh, context of the discussion. Yeah. So, um, are you talking about like the challenges occurring with MSC services? Well, well, well. Basically, this is a meeting to get the input of of stakeholders, like the director of public works, and 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 so, what what kind of input did you get from them? I mean, what were the sort of issues regarding the territorial seizure protection plan that were sort of raised or or are proffered during uh, this morning's stakeholder meeting? Um, I wouldn't say there were any really issues raised. Um, we have discussed the various challenges with agencies already regarding the future reserve, whether that be from illegal dumping to sewage outfalls to coastal mm -hmm. development. Um, I know Director of Department of Public Works, he brought up some um, comments about coastal infrastructure specifically because they deal with coastal infrastructure. So I guess more or less like how the social reserve plan will address coastal infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And um, also with Guam Police Department Marine Patrol, you know, they are the ones that patrol the marine waters and enforce uh, the recreational water use management plan. So um, they had some questions about um, just different authorities and how they would fit into the social reserve plan specifically. Um, and what we kind of discussed during the question and answer um, section was that we plan to have uh, meetings with, I believe, every agency separately to kind of discuss their views on how we should move forward with this plan and um, their specific projects that they're working on right now within the future reserve. Mm -hmm. And then through um, what we've also done as part of the future reserve, Future Reserve Plan thus far is created a challenges and current project inventory. So this is a, a like kind of another matrix basically of all of the conservation management plans that um, have projects currently happening within the Future Reserve. So this includes um, the Coral Reef uh, Resilience Strategy, the Guam Wildlife Action Plan, um, the Watershed Management Plans. So. What we hope to do over the next few months is engage the agencies that are involved in these projects, both individually as well as collectively, to kind of gauge what their um, what the status is of these projects, how they are envisioning them moving forward, and then how we can also um, look towards the future of creating projects to mitigate challenges um, with forthcoming. Um, so yeah. Well, going back, one of the, talking about the various plans and then works here. I mean, that it, one of the values of doing a territorial seizure protection plan it is sort of 
uh, regularizes or coordinates or, or sets a situation for coordination of these many active plans for the management of, uh, of our also resources. The most recent have been, I, I believe, has been the coal refusancy strategy, which was implemented by the governor by executive order in, uh, in uh, 2019, um, and is a, a serious concern to the uh, to uh, uh, the environmental uh, and uh, resource management agencies because of the uh, onslaught of uh, climate change and uh, that has uh, come up with almost a, a record number of bleaching events in coral reefs and a substantial loss of, uh, of, our, of our corals in just the last decade and a half and the projections are of, our, of, of increasing frequency in coral bleaching events between now and the end of the century. So uh, I want, there are two things I wanted to sort of go back, go back to here is as for the, has there ever been a territorial seashore protection plan? So there was one drafted back in the early 2000s, and I believe the draft was written up until 2012, but it was never submitted to the legislative branch. So currently there is no Guam Seashore Reserve. So you're doing pioneering work, essentially. Basically. Yeah. I I don't want to say that uh, we take all the credit because, you know, back in the early 2000s, they did write um, a pretty comprehensive plan, but it's nothing like what we've done thus far. Yeah, well, uh, uh, well, speaking of credit, but I'm the bureau is going to take credit for um, submitting this uh, program to create a territorial seashore plan to uh, to the Coastal Fellowship Program, and thereby acquiring the uh, the valuable service of you to actually get it done. So we're going to claim credit for that at least here, okay? Uh, but okay. that but that actually, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, you know, all joking aside here, that sort of speaks the urgency and necessity. Uh, for getting a territorial mm-hmm. seizure plan, because absent that, the only really governing um, strictures on our offshore resources has been uh, the recreational uh, use uh, master plan, which you referred to, enforced by the police department, and the marine preserves. But that's mm-hmm. about it. And, uh, and of course, offshore resources are far more complicated than that, and there, there are a number of synergies and intersections uh, between various elements in terms of using use of uh, offshore resources, not just for... Uh, uh, for sustenance, but also for recreational use and other uses as well. So this is sort of valuable work uh, uh, that you're doing, Chelsea, and we're very fortunate to have you on board uh, board uh, to do it. The the other thing is, is, by the way, am I correct in saying that the only regimes out there are the uh, territorial, uh, uh, the uh, marine preserves and the and the rump, or is there in your research did you find some other legal or regulatory structure? Are you, ter- are you talking in terms of like well, in terms of management in terms of management of activities and, and resources offshore resources oh. my, my recollection when I first looked at this is the only thing out there effectively uh, regulating what happens out there was the recreation use master plan and the marine preserves it, was there any other uh, regulatory regime that you're aware of or that you found in your research other than the executive orders which established the coral reef resilience strategy right right um not too much and even with the marine preserves there isn't really a structure on how they should be managed other than the laws well it does forbid Um, it does forbid fishing and 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 now so there's that okay so at least it's that simple a regulation uh but again it speaks to the importance of having a territorial seashore protection plan which not only uh, uh, dis, uh, is a determination what should or should not be done, but actually uh, address the issue of the sound management of our offshore resources. Do I do I have that part right, I, Chelsea? Mm-hmm. Okay. Definitely. Okay. Moving forward, then. So you had this first of um, of uh, stakeholder meetings. You have another one tomorrow, I believe. No. Luckily, no. Well, not luckily, but 
I'm glad that we're finished and kind of moving on from the stakeholder okay. meeting. So I thought I thought it was a two day. Me, I thought it was a two day thing, but it's only just uh, just this morning. Then okay. Just so this morning. All right. So you have the stakeholder meeting out of the way. So what for? Why don't you walk through for the listening audience? What? How? What are the next steps? What can they expect to see unfold in this process? So what we hope to get next is feedback. Uh, first is feedback on the comprehensive study that we've um, written. Um, I've already received some comments from the National Park, National Park Service, um, as well as um, some others that have just submitted their personal comments about it. So um, really looking forward to getting some more um, input on this study. Um, the next step after that uh, will be soon, that we'll be engaging the different agencies to talk about the challenges that were addressed during the previous interviews, like challenges occurring within the future reserve, mm -hmm. as well as to discuss the current project inventory that we have. So again, like I was just discussing the um, various management plans and development plans and conservation plans that we went through, there are already so many projects happening within the future reserve. So right now, it makes more sense to kind of see where each agency is on these projects and then move forward Moving forward, we can work with the agencies to develop forthcoming strategies, and not just with the agencies, because there are many community organizations that are involved in these projects. And so, as, yeah, give us a, give us a sense sense of what kind of projects these are uh, there are out there happening here. Are they infrastructure projects? What kind of projects are these? Oh, so many different types of projects. Okay, so. Um, well, well, those, we have a half an hour left. In, Chelsea, we have a half an hour left in the segment, so feel free uh, to, uh, to go <laughs> oh, into this in detail. Boring, no, 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 no. Before we get but, any further, Chelsea, the reason why... No, before we move on, no, no, Chelsea, manager, Chelsea, hang, hang on for a minute. Chelsea, Chelsea. Through, Chelsea. Uh, watershed management plan as well as um, another watershed management plan. So some of the projects that are happening specifically within the watershed include bamboo removal, uh, reforestation this is a, the, work. Chelsea, right? can you hear me? Chelsea? Mm -hmm. Yes. And ba ba bamboo removal, that's happening down in Marizzo, right? Um, it says that so it's being removed from the Manel Channel. That's in Marizzo, so yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. So, um, yeah, so that is happening within the Manel Channel, and then there's some pilot mangrove outplantings, uh, out which are also being done in Marizzo. Um, there's some... Quite a bit of public outreach is happening within these watershed management plans, and then there's the coral reef uh, response activity. So this could be the crown of thorns, um, crown of thorns, crown of thorns removal, bleaching surveys, um, the long-term monitoring sites, and then the long-term monitoring. You're talking about the long-term monitoring of coral reefs, mm -hmm. which is done by the OG Marine Lab, I believe. Yes, and the okay. coral reef response team. Okay. Um, is um, by the way, just, I, I was I uh, I, I wanted to interview you talking about you didn't want to bore people, and just uh, this is a good point for you to for me to chime in as to why I do this show. Uh, mm -hmm. I said one of the first things I found when I got this job at Director Citizen Plans was the uh, uh, found a very interesting the broad variety of things that the bureau gets involved in, and mm -hmm. ranging from compact impact to coral reefs to uh, to issues of sustainability and, and land use planning. Um, the other thing I found was that how people were interested in the stuff, uh, almost to a geeky extent. And so, but there was not a lot of form, at least in the, in the mass media, to give the very complicated issues a sort of long-form basis to get into these in sufficient detail. 
uh, they usually confine to 30 second sound bites or a few column inches in, in the print media. So um, this is the show where I deliberately go in in depth into um, this sort of this sort of stuff and sort of get the information out there. If people want this sort of um, uh, topic of the day sort of stuff here, there are more than ever shows. Uh, out there, uh, or programs out to do there, or or conflicts between politicians here. But with this one, uh, it, was, it was meant to uh, to avail the public uh, of uh, the expertise of and uh, and the uh, and the knowledge of people like you, uh, who uh, who actually know what they're talking about. So, um, given that here, um, let's let's go into um, um, you, the sort of things that came out of the program. But where where in this process here? Um, does the um, does the public uh, provide its input here? Um, are we in that process now? And and more importantly, you mentioned this sort of comprehensive study you did in preparation for this um, uh, 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 stakeholder engagement. Here is is that study publicly available? Not yet, mm-hmm. but I we do hope that it will be publicly available within the next few months. Mm-hmm. So as a part of the next steps, as well as the uh, agency engagement, is to have village forums where we'll, we will um, gather in each village around the seashore and kind of discuss um, what we've done on the seashore reserve plan, how the village and community foresees the seashore looking in the future, you know. And then also, um, I hope to personally do more outreach, whether it be writing more articles to garner public attention, um, anything really. I'm open to doing anything, but I do know that engaging the public is of absolute concern. Okay. And of absolute importance, really, not concern, important, because you cannot write this plan without the public's input. And when you said, and when I said, um, I don't want to bore people. It's, it's not that I think I misspoke when I said that. There's just a lot of there's a lot of things going on. There are a lot of projects going on, which is very exciting, and it is important that the public knows about them. And I was just taking a look more into some of the other plans that we've reviewed, and one of them being like the comprehensive historic preservation plan. And, and this, this I, for, for example, is just it's all so important to the preservation of Guam's culture and history. So identifying and evaluating historic properties within the Seashore Reserve is one of the projects that they have here. Um, and then the strengthening community involvement in historic preservation. Um, so uh, hopefully within the next month or so we'll be able to make the updated draft the draft plan or the draft comprehensive study available for the public to review that would be optimal yeah in the in terms of this uh, uh community hours you don't you plan to go into the villages when um you know a couple of thoughts occurred to me is this likely to happen anytime soon and and if it is uh, going to be some ways down the line, I, I think somewhat uh, that will govern this is to the extent we've uh, actually dealt with the COVID-19 crisis. You know, what uh, these sort of in-person gatherings are few and far between uh, nowadays. And But six months from now, considering as we make substantial efforts towards vaccination in our community, those restrictions will be uh, lifted. On the other That's side... That's the aim, is six months from now, maybe around January 2022. Well, let, let's let's cross our fingers and hope the new variants don't catch us up the, uh, catch up with the, with us then, and we all have to go back to the old ways of doing things. So I, I think that would be that would be a very exciting uh, uh, looking uh, looking forward to. By the way, you mentioned um, uh, historic uh, offshore um, uh, resources here. What? Yeah, uh, maybe for the listening audience, what what's an example of an historic offshore resource? What might be? Is it like a sunken wreck, or what would that might be? 
Yeah, so, well, I think I was just talking about historic preservation in right. general, not necessarily sunken properties or submerged well, properties. Well, offshore properties. Is it is something that you have any offshore, or are there, are there coastal properties that are historic, you're thinking? Oh, both. I mean, I definitely think both well, are then, important. Then, then what's, the, what's the example um, for an offshore historic property? It's a sunken ve uh, vessel, or is there something else? Oh, yeah, it could definitely be a sunken vessel. I mean, I consider the Tokai Maru a historic vessel. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, as well as the SMS Comoran. I mean, mm -hmm. although they aren't um, native ships to Guam, they're still important to Guam's history. And um, although they don't, like, lie within the seashore reserve either, they're still considered historic properties, in my opinion. So if, um, if there are historic properties that are submerged within the seashore reserve, I absolutely consider them. Or if there are properties that, that people consider historic, I also consider them historic. Um, yeah, right. if that answers your question. Right. Uh, by the way, if anyone wants to join the conversation with Chelsea Willits, you can call us at 477-5757. That's 477-5757. We are broadcast live on News Talk K57 and 96.5 FM. We're also simulcast on GTA Channel 3 and Docomo Channel 2. And we're streaming live on at News K57 uh, on Facebook and on PNCGuam.com and K57.com. Uh, uh, so, Chelsea, once you've gone through the, um, uh, the, the public got their public input and your uh, what what are the final stages of finalizing the um, uh, the uh, um, um, the territorial seashore uh, protection plan what 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 kind of process does that look like so I'm not too familiar with this project a process I imagine Edwin would probably have more clarification okay. on this but I I do know that after we've done the agency engagement after we've gone through the project inventory and then develop strategies for the future, um, we will make this all into the seashore reserve plan. Like this will be the entire seashore reserve plan with a comprehensive study. I mean, I imagine it could be a three-part document that, mm -hmm. and uh, Edward and I were discussing that it could be um, something that's clickable, like having, you're able to like click on it on the side and then be able to reference it that way instead of having to scroll all the way down, right? Um, so. So the hope is to have this uh, plan in its entirety. In entirety, it's submitted to the legislative branch mm -hmm. during the third quarter of fiscal year of 2022. The third so quarter, the third quarter of fiscal year 2022, mm -hmm. which would be um, uh, April through um, April through June. That would be the third yeah. quarter, right? Mm -hmm. So that that's that's roughly your target. Mm -hmm. Everything going going right. Hope cross fingers and hopefully everything goes goes right. Uh, mm -hmm. So in essence, though, um, you you mentioned the, the the part I was sort of getting to is is once the plan is is prepared, it gets submitted to the governor for review, and then the governor, oh, oh, if it meets um, muster, will transmit it to the legislature for adoption legally, and so therefore it will be a, a be a basically a statutory basis that will guide all future regulatory and, and sort of planning regimes. Uh, kind of like the comprehensive development plan is the basis for the zoning code or zoning laws mm -hmm. and, and other sort. Is, is that a fair analogy to it? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, we hope so. Well, um, that's true. We, we hope so. You know, see, see if it's, uh, if it's uh, adhered to uh, uh, more to the rule or more to the breach. But, and, but, and again, that, that's, the, um, that's the fun of, uh, of public policy. It requires continuous engagement. Uh, to adapt to changing circumstances. So let's say we have a territorial seashore protection plan, okay? Wh why don't you give us a sense as to what the benefits are to having a ter so first ever 
uh, you know, uh, ter uh, Territorial Seashore Protection Plan. Imagine you're on the Oregon Trail, Chelsea, and you reach Oregon. Mm -hmm. What is going to be built in Oregon once you, once pioneers like you get there? What, what, what would be a Territorial Seashore Protection Plan regime look like? Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I gave you I gave you a simple question, didn't I? So uh, <laughs> you, you know, you know, I, I was mostly asking with the sort of trace its import. I mean, what it would mean in terms of actual um, uh, issues regarding fisheries, regarding uh, 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 co uh, coastal usage, regarding uh, environmental management, regarding uh, uh, measures to uh, uh, to protect the coral reefs or protect uh, habitats or uh, or endangered species or or how it's impact on development, uh, particularly coastal development and, and watersheds and those issues. And so I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I, I'm uh, this territorial seizure plan, plan is um, is supposed to address, uh, the, if not in detail, but in general, in principle, all those issues. They're put in a sort of coherent context. So I was, uh, and, and again, we're prejudging what you're actually going to produce. But I was hoping you would give the uh, the audience a sense of these sort of issues. Maybe I've just expounded on all of them just right now. <laughs> but uh, you're the expert in this one. So um, I, I, let's try with a simple question. Why is the Territorial Seizure Protection Plan necessary? What's it going to do, that, what's it gonna do, do in the future that's not being done now? So other than the Coastal Survey of 1974, there has never been a comprehensive study of the seashore environment. So for one, it provides historically a reference for people to um, look at when they're, uh, you know, in the future as to what the seashore environment was like in 2021. Um, secondly, it will also provide a guidance for various projects moving forward. So. Like I said before, there are already so many management plans, development plans, and conservation plans that have been written by various agencies here. And so we don't want to take away from those projects because a lot of the projects that are listed already address those challenges that you had mentioned, whether it be coral reefs, whether it be mangroves. Um, now, there aren't too many management plans when it comes to like coastal infrastructure, but that's not to say that specifically, for example, DPW isn't working on projects to help regulate those things. So what we, what I envision for this plan is that it provides guidance just to those in the future that are trying to, um, I, I don't know, build coastal infrastructure sites within the seashore reserve. And it will also, so as a result of the seashore reserve plan, if adopted, what the next step will be is to write rules and regulations for the seashore reserve. Now, in the law itself, there are already some, and it refers to, you know, having to contact the Guam Territorial, going through the Guam Territorial Seashore Protection Commission in order to get a permit to to develop within the seashore reserve, so those kind of things. By the um, way, by the way, just to interrupt for the audience, the Guam Territorial Sea Seashore Protection Commission is basically the Guam Land Use Commission. Mm -hmm. uh, they, the people members of that are, are members of that panel. So, so, but the the structure basically is just to go get them for a permit. It doesn't provide for a basis in which those permits are supposed to be issued. Is or is there or is it most is that in the most general of terms? It's in the most general terms. Mm. So I imagine, yeah, what will happen oh, is Oh, good. We get to make up the rules as we go along. Okay. <laughs> oh, good. We get to make up the rules as we go along right now. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but this will be a, a provide a firmer basis, kind of like the Comprehensive Development Plan Law. It provides yeah. the basis for the Guam Land Use Commission. 
to make mm-hmm. decisions regarding zoning and allowed uh, and allowed uh, uh, development. So, um, Ch- Chelsea, is there? There must be other jurisdictions that have a seashore protection plan. I, I would think uh, coastal communities. In your, uh, in, your, in, in your experience, I mean, for example, does California have a seashore protection plan of some sort? Um, not not a seashore protection plan, or that's not what it's called. Um, so but, but Hawaii so- has an ocean resources management plan, which we've referenced a lot, and they okay. actually have really good information in regards to using or uplifting traditional ecological knowledge and. We're, we're doing that within the plan. So if there are terms that um, reference or that are able to be referenced in tomorrow, we've been using the tomorrow words quite ah. often. And um, yeah, so that, that plan specifically has been one that we have referenced quite a bit. And I imagine that there are other uh, coastal zone management plans around the United States specifically, if that's what you're referencing well uh, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. I'm thinking over they may not call it a seashore protection plan but there there must be statutory regimes that govern uh, the use and development of uh, offshore resources in, in that sense as opposed to the sort of hodgepodge piecemeal approach we have now where in you mm-hmm. know we have the marine reserves you know that, that basically have restrictions we have the recreations master plan that has its own set of restrictions but they're they're not quite um, a full-scale inter- interconnected um, uh, um, uh, master master plan that covers all of them, which considering mm-hmm. the the fragile nate, uh, uh, state of uh, of uh, environments um, uh, throughout the world due to climate change and and other factors here are are more importantly getting more giving more and more importance and and for our uh, island it's not just a matter of um, of uh, uh, of uh, having a clean environment or uh, the quality of life here uh, our environment is is basically our competitive edge as a tourist destination. And to the extent that uh, uh, it's endangered or is is, uh, is undermined, it, it threatens the, the cornerstone of our, our tourism economy. Uh, some of that has led to um, discussion about the va- uh, the economic uh, uh, value of the, of the environment. Has has led to um, discussions on the national level. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but in the last couple of years, uh, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Association, and other ways have, have embraced the concept of uh, of uh, natural infrastructure. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so you know, it's, and usually FEMA policy in terms of mediation and in terms of disaster recovery has, has been uh, entirely focused on build infrastructure. Uh, you build seawalls, you build uh, re- concrete, uh, concrete as resiliency, and then you repair uh, those, those uh, edifices uh, when they're uh, um, uh, assaulted or, 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 or damaged or destroyed by uh, natural disasters like a hurricane in, in the uh, in one part of the uh, of the um, of the globe, and uh, which is the same thing as a typhoon in our part of the globe. And ish, and areas such as, for example, reefs, which are um, are are natural defenses against storm surges and protect the coastline. Uh, there have been a new, uh, policies in place to uh, not so deal with, um, with uh, well, there's a new outstanding policy for building, when they talk about building resiliency in communities at the end of the BRIC program, they also specifically address natural infrastructure. And one of the things that uh, the Bureau is examining is the, uh, is the actual practical experience of what has ha- happened in the last few years in Puerto Rico. Uh, after the hurricanes, in which case there has been substantial involvement by not only FEMA, the uh, Federal Emergency Management Administration, but also NOAA, the National Oceanographic uh, Atmospheric Administration, for which sponsored you as a coastal fellow, in mm-hmm. getting involved directly in and um, and and uh, 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 repairing coral reefs, even to the extent of of applying 
um, uh, you know, uh, a replanting coral reefs in those areas to uh, deal with the damage due to recent hurricanes. And one more interesting aspect of those case history, because this, this transition uh, to recognize natural infrastructure is a fairly recent one. I, I recall when I was in the U.S. Coral uh, Reef Task Force, which has representatives from uh, jurisdictions that have coral reefs, such as Guam or Florida, et cetera, um, I was sort of at the, at the beginning where everybody was waiting for this study to be released by OMB that could be the basis for the establishment uh, of, uh, or the change in policy or like FEMA to embrace the idea of natural infrastructure that needs to be mediated, protected, and repaired. Um, but, uh, and there was a call out to everybody, on the, if you have any influence with OMB or know people with their own please, please push them to get the study out, you know, so that we can have that basis. So this has been, this is 2019 when I was at a uh, U.S. Corps Task Force meeting in D.C. And so we're now at, uh, at um, 2022, and it's, uh, it's being uh, practically applied in areas that have suffered uh, damage um, uh, to natural infrastructure, such as, uh, uh, such as um, uh, uh, Puerto Rico here. And uh, locally here, I mean, the issue of protecting uh, uh, coral reefs is one of, uh, of, uh, of important um, uh, uh, importance to the community, again, and to the extent that uh, most recently, the, um, the, or actually just last year, uh, a new law was enacted to establish a Tumon Bay Insurance Tax Force to explore the feasibility of obtaining what's known as parametric insurance for the reach, reef and beach of Tumon Bay. So uh, you know, you know, this is uh, based on a model by the developer over a few, year, uh, a few years ago by the Nature Conservancy. I'm not sure you're familiar with it. They, uh, they had this set up in Mexico where hotels paid uh, uh, some of their fees or had them applied to an, an, a private insurance. Uh, so that if the disaster hit that area that affected the coral reefs, the payout would be for immediate restoration. Are you, are you familiar with that project from the Nature Conservancy? No. Okay. Yeah, I, it's, um, um, I got a briefing on that in 2019, uh, well, when I, again, when I was there for the U.S. Coral Reef Task Force. So uh, locally, on the basis of that statute, there's been an active policy to, to explore that option. Uh, as a way of um, of um, uh, building a capacity to quickly deal with damage to coral reefs, which, in order to do so, you really need to move quickly once it happens. Um, and uh, you know, there's and you, uh, you have fortunately you have not been through a typhoon uh, in your brief time on on island here. But uh, for those involved in dis in um, disaster recovery, the general rule is is that when a disaster hits you're you're kind of on your well, at least in, at least in guam and some of the islands here you're kind of on your own for like the first two three four days um let alone get anything in from um from fema by that point so you're dealing with local resources to do so now to be fair a lot of it is, is reimbursable later by fema but for the uh, you need to rely upon the stuff here rather than waiting for something to deliver from a plane uh, anytime soon. Um, there are certain circumstances where there's a quick response. I, I remember at the, uh, uh, are you familiar with the Korean plane crash that happened uh, uh, happened about 20 years ago? In no. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Well, here's another story. This Korean plane, uh, 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 plane as it was determined later on, uh, the, the pilot literally, um, you know, uh, relied upon his own judgment and, and flew the plane into a mountainside uh, up near Nimitz Hill. And most of them, uh, 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 most of them, the people there on the plane died in one of the more uh, important uh, civil plane crashes of the, the decade. But anyway, um, th there, was, um, there was a quick response by, by local um, first responders, including then-Governor Guterres, who actually went into the valley where the plane had crashed to help supervise the effort. And uh, 
uh, care was taken care of by, by the local hospitals. Uh, so the, we largely function on local resources and uh, to deal with the situation. The one thing FEMA did send in was what is known as a DMORT crew, which is basically uh, to, ha uh, uh, to handle large numbers of, of dead bodies. Uh, you know, they are, we have a process of doing it, but certainly not you know, a couple hundred at one time. And they set us up in an aircraft hangar. Now that one happened, they flew in really quickly to set up that operation. So aside from that, a lot of them are sort of based on, on, uh, on local resources and the response to it. I'm sort of uh, uh, digressing a bit in, uh, in, uh, in recent, hi recent history as a way of sort of establishing uh, uh, the sort of uh, context in which your work in the Territorial Seashore Protection Plan uh, is sort of important because uh, kind of like in natural disasters, but even dealing with the management issues, we're sort of at the spear point of this. Uh, it sort of relies upon us in order to make the, the calls and the, and the choices and decisions in order to protect uh, the environmental heritage of the people of Guam. And, and the starting point, I, I, I honestly believe, and this is why uh, I made this a priority when I became Director of System Plans, is the Territorial Seizure Protection Plan, which has, which has never existed amazing as that may sound, we've never had one. We've had, we've had a Guam land use plan, uh, and that's been updated over years, but never a territorial seashore protection plan. And, uh, and especially as we get into a world that it becomes more complicated, more interdependent, more threatened by climate change, it's even, uh, even, uh, even more important. Um, um, and, and, and in some sense, we're sort of behind the times in actually doing something like this. This is sort of why I asked this question as to what was done in other jurisdictions. Although they may have called it a seashore protection plan, I'm sure there's, there's some statutory regulatory regime uh, governing them. And you mentioned Hawaii as this, uh, uh, was it ocean resource management uh, plan? Or what was that called? Yeah, so they, they've written the ocean resources management plan, yeah, and it was published in 2020. Of 2020. Oh, well, good. Then you have a recent uh, example in which to base your work on. Uh, yeah, as you very move forward. recent. Okay. Um, it, Chelsea, in, 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 in identifying the sort of issues that are, would be addressed by the Territorial Seashore Protection Plan, um, there, there would be th things on de development in terms of recreational use, in terms of uh, tourism-related use, in terms of uh, envir environment, environmental management. What, what, what is the basic criteria or construct that you think will come from this? Basically, uh, is it, is it uh, uh, public desires for their own vision for the community? Or what, what are the sort of elements that sort of go into this one? Or is it just identifying uh, critical needs or things or, or, or vulnerabilities? Um, give us a sense as to, I know you're going through a process in which you're getting these inputs. Uh, from the stakeholders and the public, et cetera. But as a framework, uh, what, what, what sort of inputs do you think are, are needed for a good uh, seashore protection plan for any jurisdiction? Chelsea? Sorry, sorry, I'm here. Um, so it really, it's, it's tough to say at this point. Um, mm -hmm. So what I have experience in writing conservation plans, like in my graduate degree, as well as reviewing other management plans, is that um, typically what is done is that the challenges are ranked based on their threat level. So um, I know that the seashore reserve, the Territorial Seashore Protection Act of 1974 states that you know all uh, organisms must or must be maintained at optimum levels. But in reality, that's that's a goal that's not. Not that it's not attainable, but it's very far-fetched. So what we have but to do is kind of gather ideas as to 
uh, what challenges could be addressed that really that really would have effect over a multitude of uh, challenges, if that makes sense. So, for example, if we are addressing um, stormwater management, that would indirectly affect um, or directly affect the uh, health of coral reefs. Mm-hmm. Um, it would also directly affect the health of the the, um, the coastal environment, like the land, the terrestrial part. And as well, it would also um, have to deal with like sewage and coastal infrastructure as well. So if we were to tackle one or two or three specific problems that would address multi- a multitude of challenges, that to me is beneficial. Um, but I'm not going to say that's how we're going to do it because it's still early to say. I think we really need to just sit down and just discuss with the agencies and community members and, get, and gather their, their comments and ideas so that we can process this moving forward collaboratively. Okay, well, that, that's a great point here. Well, well Chelsea, we're reaching the last few minutes of the show. And um, uh, this is the part of the program where I turn over the mic over to uh, the guests for whatever ever final final comments and uh, or thoughts or information we <coughs> to impart. Um, uh, perhaps you could tell um, the listening audience if they want to provide their own input and what they see in the territorial seizure protection plan. Uh, what would be the timing of it, and how could they do so? I'm sure. So I imagine over the next few months we'll be able to publish. The, um, the draft plan and the draft comprehensive study portion thus far. Um, and what we'll do is it'll probably publish through the Guam Pacific Daily News. Um, and it you may mean, be like you a mean through, you, mean, you mean you mean through Manland and Sea? You mean through Manland and Sea, which is only published? That as yeah. well. Okay. Both. But also the Post as well, then. Mm-hmm, because yes. I know, like, the Pacific Daily News gathers more attention than I imagine the Manland and Sea. Typically, right. Um, so, if we were to do it through both avenues, that would be even better, as well um, as well as the Guam Post. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, so, um, this will be happening over the next few months. Okay. Well, Chelsea, if there's anything else you wish to add, we'll we'll wrap up the segment here. Uh, thanks for uh, taking time out this evening. After well, I'm sure it's been a long day for you, in uh, yeah. dealing with these sort of issues, and and um, and uh, we'll have you back at. Uh, uh, what's a good milestone to have you back onto on on progress here when the stakeholder engagement is done, or when do you think? Uh, or I'm sorry, now that it's done, when when do you think it'd be a good time to check in with you as to well how are you how maybe, you're doing? Maybe around um, August or September, okay. I'll have a better idea of how things are going in terms of agency engagement and where we are in project development and stuff like that. Okay, so here at the beginning of the summer, we'll say uh, uh, we'll we'll see you then at the end of the summer. To see how, how how well you have borne under the, in your burdens during the summer, sound like it a plan? Good. Okay, Chelsea, thank you very much. That's Chelsea Willis, the Coastal Fellow, uh, with the uh, signed to do the uh, Territorial Seashore Protection Plan, signed to Guam for that purpose for a, a two-year period, in a program of which uh, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration picks up 90% of the costs, and, um, and we uh, and we are uh, uh, the local government only has to pick up a, a measly 10% of it for this uh, value, expertise, and work. Um, this is the Dad Help Retire on Titano. We are live on Newstalk KFT7 and 96.5 FM. We're also streaming live on pnc.com, also on kfd7.pncguam.com, also kfd7.com, and also at Newstalk KFT7 at Facebook. And we are simulcast on GTA Channel 3 and Docomo Channel 2. A podcast of this program 
uh, they tell me will be made available, if not tonight, then tomorrow. Uh, and then links to them will, will be uh, to those uh, pod, uh, podcasts we provide on the Bureau's three social media pages. Uh, one for the Bureau itself, one for the Coral Reef Initiative, and one for the Coastal Management Program. Uh, the program for which, uh, through which we got the services of uh, Chelsea Willis to work on our territorial seashore protection plan. Uh, next week, we'll have on, uh, hopefully have on, Crescinda Uggen, the Deputy Director of the Department of Youth Affairs, to uh, give us a lowdown on the upcoming South Union Employment Program for the summer of 2021. We'll also have on Monica Guerrero, uh, Planner 4 with the Bureau of Statistics and Plans, who works with uh, Abel Trinidad, who was on earlier in, the se- in, this, in this program, to talk about the annual statistical yearbook and what's in there and what may be of interest uh, uh, to the, uh, to the uh, people of Guam. We're uh, heading up uh, to the CBS Radio News at the top of the hour here. Uh, I, um, uh, this is the Data Hub. Uh, hope to see everyone here, uh, here on the same program, uh, a week from today. So thanks for joining us tonight. See you next week for the Data Hub. AM Hagatya Guam is News Talk K57.